Now, uh, we have this morning a, a guest speaker who always knocks it out of the park anywhere that I've listened to him speak, including here one time before, but in other places I catch him, uh, you know, streaming online. Um, and I have listened to Jeremy Jernigan for the past at least probably decade. He's, he's brilliant, he's insightful, he's an excellent, excellent student and teacher of scripture, always brings a, a great perspective. I really, I don't think it's a stretch to say that every time that I hear him speak or teach or read something he's working on, like I always get something really good out of it. Um, Jeremy's the author of two different books. Uh, he speaks regularly at different churches. He's gotten himself down to one podcast. He was doing several. He's gotten down to one. Um, um, he also runs an organization called Communion Wine Company, which brings people together to discuss Jesus in less uh, traditional spaces like in wine bars, right? So uh, it's really fantastic. Uh, Heidi and I have been to several of those events. We love them. Um, but above all, when I think of Jeremy, what I see in him and have watched in him is that it's obvious that he has a deep love for God, a deep love for searching the scriptures. Um, he, I, I just notice that he wants to see people set free from any obstacles that would prevent folks from experiencing the truth that God is good and that God is for them. So we're in for a treat this morning. Would you all give a warm Hope family welcome to Pastor Jeremy Jernigan. Morning. It is great to be back with you guys. I always love when I get invited back. It means it wasn't so bad the first time. So thank you, Doug, for, for welcoming me back. Uh, I, I love this gathering together with communities, and I love the fact that I get to jump around to different church communities each week and, and see how big this thing is that, that we call the kingdom of God and, and all the different expressions of it. And one of the things I love is that some of you came in here today and you like skipped your way in here. I mean, it's been a great week. You're just like loving life. Everything's great. And you just want to celebrate with people. And we get to do that. And some of you, you're on the other end of the spectrum. Like you're dragging yourself here. You're like, I need something. And, uh, and wherever you're at in between all of that, right, we get to gather together and we get to share this space together. I had the chance to take a few of my kids to the D-backs game last night. Any D-backs fans in the house? So I'm dragging a little bit today. I'm a little, uh, it's, it was sad last night. It was sad, you know, made a, made a great memory with the kids. What was funny last night is that I was uh, in, an, in a row behind some very loud people. And in particular, this guy in front of me, the entire night reminded me of Doug. I mean, literally, it was like a bizarro version of Doug, but like a way more aggressive version. Like, I've never known Doug to be an aggressive guy, but this guy was like an angry version of Doug. And I thought, I don't know if it's just I've got Doug on the mind because I'm like preaching for him tomorrow or like this really is Doug's bizarro. Like, it was, it was weird. But great to be with you guys today. We're gonna look at a story that I absolutely love. I just love this story. I love the way that we see Jesus uh, in this story. And so if you've got your Bibles, we're gonna be in Luke chapter eight. If you have a physical Bible, I wanna encourage you to get that out. If you have an app on your phone, it's okay. You can use the app. I love for you to see the details in this story for yourself. Uh, otherwise, I will read it for us. Uh, I'm gonna give you the big idea up front, and then we're gonna see Jesus just hit on this idea over and over throughout this story. The big idea I wanna share is this, that Jesus focused on people one at a time. Jesus focused on people one time. Now you might go, big deal, so what? I, I wanna suggest this is something truly remarkable, that if, if you and I would, would uh, 
embrace this, we would experience Jesus differently if we understood like, wow, this is how Jesus wants to connect with me. But then also we would treat other people differently if we understood like, oh, this is how Jesus works. This is how Jesus operates. But just to state the obvious, to be focused on people one at a time means you have to know how to focus which I don't know about you, seems to be a skill that we're losing these days. In fact, I've realized I suffer from a psychological illness, and you may too. And I'm gonna explain what I suffer with just, you know, full candor, and some of you are gonna go, I got that too. Do you ever find yourself, you walk into a room, and as soon as you cross the threshold of that room, you completely forget what you came in there for? Anybody else, show of hands, you're my people, okay? This happens to me all the time. You know there's actually a phrase for this? It's called the doorway effect, okay? You can look this up, the doorway effect. Literally, our short-term memory resets when you walk through the threshold of a room. I don't know why, but I spend so much of my life standing in doorways, right? Just thinking like, I know there was a good reason I came in here. And then I'm standing and I'm pondering, like, why did I come? And then a kid will say something to me or my phone will ping. And then I have no idea. You know, and then like days later, I'm like, oh, that's what I went in that room for. Uh, this, is, this is tricky. But we're going to look at what does it mean to focus on people to do it really well. And if you're like me, I'm just going to preach this to myself today, and some of you might get something out of it, okay? Because this is like one of those things that I'm like so enamored with Jesus because I don't do this naturally. And I, I, like, I want to be more like what I find in today's story. And so maybe that will be you as well. We're going to look at Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 40. Luke writes this. On the other side of the lake, the crowds welcomed Jesus because they had been waiting for him. And then a man named Jairus, a leader of the local synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come home with him. Now stop here. This would have been a strange moment. Jairus is, is named, which means this would be someone that most people knew in this community. He's the leader of a synagogue. This is like a, a, a local pastor, if you will, in our kind of context. Like, oh yeah, I know who that is. And here, you know, they're used to this guy being a leader, standing up in front of them. And here he is bowing down at Jesus' feet. You can imagine everyone who's watching this scene is going, what happened to Jairus? We've not seen the side of him before. Something has shaken him. He's literally down at the feet of Jesus. What happened to him? We don't know what's going on. Verse 42, Luke tells us, his only daughter, who was about 12 years old, was dying. Now, a lot of scholars believe, based on the wording of this, it wasn't just his only daughter. It was likely his only child. Okay? So the emphasis being on this could have been his only child. She's 12 years old, which is important to note. And, and she is dying. So his only child is dying. And here he's coming thinking maybe, maybe Jesus could heal her. He had heard some things about this crazy rabbi that was, you know, a bit different than other leaders. And he thought, maybe this is my chance. And, you know, as a parent, what would you not do for a child in need? Like you'd do anything you could. And so Jairus is like, this is my chance. Now we don't know what Jesus said when Jairus comes. We just know that Jesus went with them. It says, as Jesus went with him, he was surrounded by the crowds. Now, if you're Jairus, this is the last thing you want. You want Jesus laser-focused on going to your house and saving your daughter. And then a crowd begins to assemble. 
you can imagine Jairus just, he's getting antsy, he's getting nervous going, come on, Jesus, I, my daughter is waiting. I mean, this is really bad. I need you to hurry. And then it's gonna get even worse for Jairus because Luke is gonna introduce another person into the story, verse 43. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding and she could find no cure. Now, I want you to consider, Luke, who's writing this, was a physician by trade. So Luke is, is telling this story from his perspective, saying, look, she couldn't find any doctor. There was no physician of the day that could cure her. I imagine she had blown through all her life savings, all her energy, all her efforts, right? If you've got something for 12 years, you're gonna find every possible cure you can. She has tried it all, and Luke says nothing was able to cure her. That all the things that she had tried, nothing was able to cure her. Now, one of the things that often happens when we read stories like this is, is sometimes, without realizing it, we, we make these like Bible characters, right? And they become like these fairy tales that are not real people. I want you to imagine a real woman, right, dealing with this. If you met someone today and this was her condition, what we would say is this is a chronic disease that you have. It's a chronic illness. The CDC defines it like this. Chronic diseases are defined broadly as conditions that last one year or more and require ongoing medical attention or limit activities of daily living or both. Clearly this woman fits this category, right? So today this is how we would you know, categorize this. Like she's got a chronic illness, chronic disease that she's dealing with. Can you even imagine 12 years of that? But I would suggest that's not the worst part for her. You might be going, how is 12 years of bleeding not the worst part? I don't think that would be the worst part. I think the cultural ramifications would have been worse for her. Now, you might go, what on earth are you talking about? We read that today in our culture and we think, okay, what would that mean for us? You have to read this with their culture in mind of what would this have meant for her? Now, we know the answer to that because we have what we call the Old Testament. They would have called it the Hebrew Bible. And we know exactly how they interacted with things. Uh, like there's books like Leviticus, right? Which I'm sure all of you read in your quiet time this morning, right? Leviticus is very engaging reading. Uh, that's the one you skim through. When your reading plan gets there, you're like, okay, let's get to the next stuff. Because uh, it's all these rules and regulations. But guess what? They talk about things like what this woman had. So let's take a little journey to Leviticus 15, uh, verse 25, for some light reading. Here's what we find out. If a woman has a flow of blood for many days, some of you are like, wow, the Bible gets into this? Yes, the Bible gets into this. That is unrelated to her menstrual period, or if the blood continues beyond the normal period, she is ceremonially unclean. So what do we know, right? This woman in Luke 8 clearly fits that description of Leviticus 15. So according to her culture, she is ceremonially unclean. Now again, that's not really a concept you and I have, so you're going, what does that mean? That means she cannot participate in the religious life of the community, in so much of what would have been normal for that culture. What this means is this woman would have been an outsider for 12 years an outsider, you're not a part of this, you're not invited in to the most meaningful things that we do together as a community, you can't participate because you are unclean. But it gets worse. 
As during her menstrual period, the woman will be unclean as long as the discharge continues. How long has she had this? 12 years. Any bed she lies on and any object she sits on during that time will be unclean just as during her normal menstrual period. Hold on a second. Not only are you as a person considered unclean, the things you touch are unclean. I want you to imagine what that would do to you as a person. People avoiding you, no one touches you for 12 years, no one, you know, uh, they make sure to keep their distance from you, but it goes beyond that. They're noticing the things that you're touching, where you've sat, and all of those things become off limits. That They make sure to avoid it. How would that make you feel? What would that do to your psyche as a person to endure that for 12 years? And it goes on to make it very clear. If any of you, now speaking to the community, any of you touch these things that this woman has touched, you will be ceremony unclean. You are gonna join her. You'll be kicked out. You won't get to be included either. You must wash your clothes and bathe yourself in water and you will remain unclean until evening. When the woman's bleeding stops, she must count off seven days, then she will be ceremonially unclean. It's so bad that she's not even unclean once she stops, or she's not clean once she stops bleeding. She's gotta wait another week to make sure everything's good, then she can come back. I mean, that just tells you, that's the culture in which this woman is living. So 12 years of that. Now, I want you to notice as you have this woman entering the scene, the connections that Luke is making to the people we already know about. Now remember who's also standing there is Jairus and his daughter who is how old? 12 years old. So Luke is drawing your attention that this adult woman has been suffering, has been an outcast as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive. These two women both in desperate need of healing, in desperate need of Jesus. Verse 44. Coming up behind Jesus, she touched the fringe of his robe. Notice the detail here. She's not walking in going, hey, Jesus, I need you to heal me. No, 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 she, she's an outcast. She's not gonna do that. Coming up behind Jesus, where is he looking? Which direction is he facing? I'm gonna go behind him. And she's trying to do it without being noticed. She's trying to go in under the radar. And notice, she doesn't walk up and put her hand on Jesus' shoulder. She doesn't put her hand on his head or grab his hand and, hey, this will get my healing. No, 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 that would be way too audacious. She comes in, she thinks, I can just touch just the edge of his cloak. That's all I need. I want you to notice two things. Number one, notice the, the humble posture here. She doesn't think she deserves this. Right, She's stealing this, if you will. I, I'm not qualified for this. I, I, I don't deserve this. I'm just gonna go under the radar. Number two, imagine the face that she has in Jesus. I think he's so powerful that he could heal me without even touching me. That if I just touched the edge of his clothing, I would be healed. That is massive faith in Jesus. So she subtly quietly goes in, touches the edge of his robe. And check this out. Immediately, the bleeding stopped. Can you imagine that? 12 years of your life, you have suffered from something. And in one moment, you can tell it's over. It's gone. 
I'm healed. She can tell immediately that she has been healed. And then the very worst thing she feared comes true next. Verse 45. Who touched me? Jesus asked. This is bad news if you're hurt. You came in under the radar, discreetly. No one's got to know. I'm going to touch the edge of his clothing. He won't even know. This will be great. It works. And then Jesus stops. Hold up. Who touched me? This is so great. Check this out. Uh, everyone denied it. I love this. I didn't touch him. Did you touch him? I, didn't touch him. I think it was him touch you. Bob touched you. I didn't touch you. No, I mean, everyone's like, no, no, no. We're not touching you, Jesus. Like, no one touched you. And then Peter, you can always count on Peter. He's got a great response. Peter said, Master, uh, this whole crowd is pressing up against you. Jesus, there are 15 shoulders touching you right now. What do you mean, who touched you? Peter's like, okay, Jesus, you are just sometimes so hard to deal with. There's an entire crowd around you. What do you mean, who touched me? Jesus, ever the patient one, verse 46. No, 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 Jesus says, someone deliberately touched me. This is great. Not like a crowd bumping shoulders. No, no, no. Someone on purpose for a strategic reason touched me. All of this line. For I felt healing power go out from me. What? I mean, this is mind-boggling. What, what the heck does that look like? I mean, I imagine Jesus walking along. He's like, whoa, whoa. hold on. So, hold on. I just healed someone. I mean, literally, like, what does that feel like if you're Jesus? You weren't planning on it. You didn't see it coming. You're just walking. All of a sudden, boom, I just changed someone's life forever. Well, hold up, hold up. Jesus says, I felt someone come to me and deliberately touch me. Like, they, they wanted something because I just healed them. I mean, this is, like, the craziest thing. Now, this is cool from, like, Jesus' point of view. Like, wow, this guy's amazing. Not cool if you're the woman, right? Verse 47. When the woman realized that she could not stay hidden, because that was her goal, she began to tremble and fell to her knees in front of him. She's thinking, oh, no. I, I, I got this blessing. I was, I was healed, but I stole it. This doesn't belong to me. I was not given permission for this. I have no right to this. And now this community that has treated me like an outcast for 12 years is going to turn on me. I mean, she's terrified. She's trembling. The whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him and that she had been immediately healed. So she has to say, look, here's the deal. I, I, I've been this person bleeding for 12 years, and I came and I touched the edge, and, and now I, I, I'm not bleeding anymore. Now I'm, I'm healed from this. Verse 48, Jesus says, daughter, he said to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. I'd like to suggest to you, I don't think that's what she was expecting Jesus to say. What was she expecting? I don't know, something like, not now, woman. I'm on my way to heal Jairus' daughter. Can't you see I'm busy? Or how about this? How dare you touch me? Can't you see I'm a rabbi? You are unclean. How dare you touch me? Because you gotta realize, she just made God in flesh unclean. Now again, to you and I, you're like, oh, big deal. It's just some religious rules. This was the way they operated. So now according to their tradition, Jesus can't do anything. He's out. Bench him. He, he's unclean. He can't do anything religious 
He has just been violated according to Old Testament laws. And I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't seem to care. You and I, we love religious stuff. We love the rules and the expectations and this is how you do it and this is not how you do it. Jesus doesn't seem to care. He just it blows by all of that. I want you to notice the way that he speaks to her. He says something so profound. Verse 48, daughter, your faith has made you well. Why is this so profound? Consider this. This is the only woman in scripture Jesus ever called daughter. See, we might read it and go, oh, that's just how he talked to women. He assumed this fatherly role and that's how he, you know. No, he didn't. This is the only woman in scripture he calls daughter. Why? Why is he suddenly calling her daughter? Because remember, this is a story within a story. This is an interruption. Who is standing next to him? Jairus, who all he's worried about is his 12-year-old daughter. And Jesus has this unbelievable supernatural ability to see this woman in front of him who has interrupted this moment. And rather than dismissing it, rather than ignoring it, rather than saying, hey, I'm just gonna let her be healed and, and private. No, he singled it out and, and makes this woman the center of attention, but he has not forgotten about Jairus. So even as Jairus is sitting there waiting, going, come on, please, let's wrap this up and get to my home. My daughter is waiting. He hears Jesus speak to this woman like a father. I imagine Jairus is looking at Jesus going, what? Do, do you understand what I'm feeling right now? Do, do, you, do you see me? I mean, there's this incredible moment of empathy as he heals this woman while also being aware that Jairus is standing next to him. And then the very worst thing for Jairus is gonna come true. Verse 49, while Jesus was still speaking to her, a messenger arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. This is so great. Luke is reminding you who Jairus is in case you have the doorway effect, right? In case you got to the story, you're like, who? Like, uh, we're talking about this, you know, this woman with 12 years. Like, no, no, the woman we began with, like the daughter, the 12-year-old girl. Like, he's like literally bringing you back. You remember Jairus, the synagogue leader. Oh, thanks, Luke. Okay, that guy. So Jairus is there, and his messenger told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. The worst possible outcome for Jairus. But when Jesus heard what had happened, he said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just have faith and she will be healed. And when they arrived at the house, Jesus wouldn't let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, James, and the little girl's father and mother. As a dad, this part of the story wrecks me. Because if I'm Jairus and I have gone out on a limb, I have taken a huge risk, I have left my daughter on her deathbed. And then I found out she died and you weren't there. I mean, imagine Jairus not only wrestling with the fact you just lost your daughter, she, she has died, but also when you could have been there for her in her final moments, you weren't there for her. This gamble that you took, it, it's not gonna pay off. In fact, you, you, you lose two times over. And so I just imagine Jairus is devastated in this moment. He's getting this report. And then Jesus says to him, hey, just have faith. What? 
Just have faith. I mean, can you imagine Jairus in that moment going, just have faith in what? Like, she's dead. What do you mean just have faith? No, just, just have faith. And yet this is what following Jesus looks like a lot of the time. Right? When you are, are given reality, this is the situation, here's the news, here's the prognosis, here's what just happened. You are given this, this reality, and then this voice of God somewhere says, just have faith. You go, what? What? Or you're dealing with some situation and then you sense God asking you to do something that doesn't seem to make sense with the situation. Like, have you ever had that moment where you were, like, in the middle of something, and then you felt the voice of God saying, trust me? And you're like, yeah, but what about this? God's like, I know. Trust me. And maybe you know that feeling. You're like, that's scary. Or maybe God is inviting you to give sacrificially, and you're, like, looking at the finances, you're like, that doesn't make any sense. And God's like, trust me. Just trust me. Or maybe God wants you to change your mind on something that you've like been so sure you're right about. And God's like, yeah, I know you're passionate about that, but you're wrong and I want to change your mind on it. You're like, but I've always believed this. God's like, I know, I know, trust me. There's so many moments where this is how faith works. You get reality and then you get this voice of God that doesn't seem to align with it. And, and, and you have to figure out what to do with it. So Jairus says, all right. I'll go with you, Jesus. All right, we'll, we'll see where this goes. Verse 52, the house was filled with people weeping and wailing. Yeah, a 12-year-old child has just died. But Jesus said, stop the weeping. She isn't dead. She's only asleep. It's a weird thing to say in that setting, right? Like you can imagine them all looking at him going, Huh? Like we're all mourning the loss of this child. And then here Jesus walks in. Whoa, hold on. She's just asleep. You don't need to do that. Notice what the reaction is. Verse 33. But the crowd laughed at him. They go from mourning and weeping and wailing to laughter. Because the absurdity of what Jesus has just said is so bizarre. Like, this guy is out to lunch. What do you mean she's asleep? Evidently, he doesn't know how life works. He doesn't know how death works. Like, this isn't a sleep child. And they begin to laugh at him because they all knew that she had died. Then Jesus took her by the hand and he said in a loud voice. I love that Luke has to tell you the volume, right? Because everyone's laughing at Jesus. And he says this, my child, get up. At that moment, her life returned and she immediately stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were overwhelmed, but Jesus insisted that they not tell anyone what had happened. I want you to imagine a scene of people laughing at Jesus. Like, this is the dumbest person ever. Does he really believe that? Does he not see what's right in front of us that we can all see? And yet, friends, I would say that we still do this today, even Christians. We, we still read things that Jesus has done or things that Jesus has taught or Jesus has invited us to do, and we go, yeah, you can't actually do that. <laughs> if you do that, it won't work. So, like, here's the way you actually do it. And, and we kind of smooth over so many things. And, and, and if this is a safe space, uh, I would like to just give you a little pet peeve of mine where I think that we do this. Is this safe space? 
Doesn't feel very safe. Only like two of you said yes to that. <laughs> I would like to share uh, a real life example where I think that we look at stuff of Jesus and we, we kind of dismiss it away. We go, no, it can't be like that. And so we come up with something else and then we say, this is what it means to be a Christian. Now, I, a little bit about me. I'm a second generation preacher. I literally grew up in the church. I've been in pastoral ministry for decades. Like I've seen a lot of things, but there are things I come across these days that I go, How? How did this become the Christian thing? I don't understand it because it's not what I find in Jesus. Now, what, I'm gonna share a real example so we're not gonna like, oh, theoretically. No, no, I'm gonna give you a real one. And some of you may be a little bit bothered by the example I share. That's okay. If you would like to email me, you can email me at dougglynn at gmail.com. I will read all of them this week, I promise you, okay? I'll take them really to heart. Uh, here's the deal. I'm gonna share something that this is just, Jeremy's take, okay? It's not Doug's take. This is not Hope Covenant's Elder Board's take. This is just Jeremy's take. And if you disagree with me, you're fine. Uh, there's, you're in good company, right? Uh, but I wanna share something that I see churches and Christians do and I just go, why? Like, why? One of the things I like to do, like a weird hobby of mine, is I like to go onto church websites and, and click on their What We Believe page. Because you can find out a lot about a church community. You just go to their What Believe page. What kind of phrases do they put in there? What things do they stress as the most important things? I could literally never visit a church, tell you, just read their What We Believe page, and I could probably tell you so many of the things that you're going to find in that community. I've gotten really good at this, right? Well, there's a phrase that I see all the time on church websites, and this phrase is a pet peeve of mine. This phrase gets my blood boiling. I cannot stand it, and yet what I have to realize this phrase for many of us has become a Christian phrase. This is like Christianity 101, yes. And so I'm gonna read this phrase and some of you are gonna go, yeah, absolutely, amen, brother. And others you're gonna go, wait, I'm confused, right? So we're just gonna go to the danger zone and if this is bad, I'll never come back again. You'll never see me, so this was fun, all right? So let's just go to the danger zone. This is literally, I copy and pasted this from a church website. We believe that death seals the eternal destiny of each person. To which many of us go, yes, brother, amen. That, that literally a mega church in our state, that is uh, off their website. This is a very pop popular idea. You see this on a lot of church websites. Now, in case you're getting really uneasy right now, it is not on your church's what we believe page. <laughs> I know some of you are going, yet, yeah. You still have time to fix this, okay? Uh, some of you are like, wow, this is getting uncomfortable. Okay, so this is like a, an expression that you'll see often. And uh, this, is, this is, you know, communicated by a lot of Christians. Like, yeah, we believe that death seals the eternal death. Now, again, this is like on a what we believe. Like, I need to know what kind of a community this is. This is one of the statements that often shows up. Now, I just want to point out that if we are going to say we're following Jesus, we have to at least acknowledge that death isn't final because it's possible to be wakened from it. Jeremy, where do you get that? I don't know, Luke 8? We just read it. You're like, oh, okay, you're gonna cherry pick one story and make a whole theology out of it. Friends, here's what's amazing. That's not even the first person in Luke 8 at this point that Jesus has done this to. Go to chapter seven, read that this week. He does it again in chapter seven before even our story. This is the second time in Luke 8, by the time you get to this part in the gospel, that Jesus has done this. So here's what I would say. For Christians, death is reinterpreted from the point of view of God. 
right? If you're a Christian, go to the next slide. Death is reinterpreted from the point of view of God. Why? Because can you imagine if Luke said, and then Jesus got to the house and he realized this child had died and he went, shoot. (laughs) Guys, if I would have been here a little bit earlier, I could have done something so awesome. But death seals the fate of each person. My hands are tied. Nothing I can do. That'd be a very different story. No, Luke doesn't say Jesus walked in and went, oh, she died. I missed it. I didn't make it in time. Jesus goes, she's not dead. Oh, Jesus, no, she uh, has no pulse. Uh, She's lifeless. Like, nothing's going, she's dead, Jesus. Jesus is like, no, she's not dead. Uh, Jesus, don't you know that death seals the fate? Like, there's nothing you can do. Like, I'm so glad Jesus didn't know that what we believe statement. Right? Because if he did, this would be a very sad story. But Jesus seems to be like, no, no, no. I don't work for death. I don't report to death. Like, she's asleep. I'm bringing her back. And I'm so grateful. And yet today we go, you can't believe that. No, 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 no. You have to believe that. Like, death seals the fate. And I go, why? I'd rather go with the Jesus that I see in the Gospels. Now, glad to get off my chest. You guys are cheaper than therapy, so thank you for giving me that moment. Let's go back to verse 53. How does Jesus say this? He says to this child, or this this kid, my child, get up. Okay, why does he not call this, this girl, why does he not call her daughter? Because her dad is standing next to him. So he doesn't call this one daughter because her dad is literally right here. But he takes a fatherly moment and says, my child, get up. This is so cool. Like Jesus just has this ability to be so present to each person there. Like everybody feels seen by Jesus the way Jesus does this. And I am in awe of how he he heals this little girl. But notice the order in which he does it. And Luke points this out. Notice that he touches her hand before he brings her back to life. Why is that important? Because there's another passage in Leviticus, I'll just save us the time, that says if you touch a dead body, you're unclean. So for Jesus the rabbi to go and touch a dead body, Jews do not touch dead bodies. That's not a thing you do. You will become unclean. So this rabbi goes over, and what he could have done is say, hey, uh, my child, get up. She comes back to life. Oh, here, let me grab your hand. Come on, safe way to do it, right? He could have easily done it. He doesn't. He goes over to the corpse, grabs her hand. My child, get up, reanimates her body. She comes back to life while he's holding her hand. If you're keeping score, this is now the second time in today's passage that Jesus has become unclean. Like, do you get this feeling that maybe all the religious stuff that we get so worked up about, like Jesus not as big a deal on? Like, it's not as big for him because he's always focused on people. And you and I tend to get lost on that. Go, yeah, but the rules and the expectations, and this is the way we do it. Jesus goes, no, no, these people. And he loves them one person at a time. Jesus is always focused on people one at a time. And friends, here's the great news. If you follow Jesus, you can treat people like this too. If you have this this same spirit inside of you, you can do what Jesus did. 
And this is amazing news. The challenge is, it's often gonna require us to get interrupted. And that's where we go, oof, that's gonna be, that's gonna be tricky. I love the way that the American film director, Francis Ford Coppola said, he said, art is partly being available to accidents that fall into your lap. What a cool way to think about art. Yeah, I didn't really plan on that, but this is an accident that fell in my lap, but I'm gonna make something cool out of it. Friends, if you have the spirit of God living inside of you, do you know how much you can make out of the accidents in life? You have been equipped and empowered to supernaturally respond to what happens to you. This is incredible. Like every interruption can be a divine moment for God to do something profound. But the question you and I have to ask is this, am I living at a speed where I can be interrupted? And this is, this is where I'm, I'm gonna preach to myself for a moment because this is where I go, oof, I'm living pretty fast. Am I living at a speed where I can be interrupted? Now to answer that for yourself, I want you to think about how fast do you walk? I don't know if you've ever thought about this. How fast do you walk? Um, I think about this a lot because I'm a very fast walker and people constantly tell me how fast I walk. Uh, for example, you get me in like an airport or Disneyland, you will be amazed at the speed coming out of this body, right? I can move at a very fast speed. These are just environments for me where I get like super excited, stoked, and I'm, I'm, I'm going. I, I'm like very fast speed. And like, in fact, I kid you not, one of like the all-time, probably top 10 arguments my wife and I have ever gotten, this is before we were married, is I ditched her at Disneyland once because she couldn't keep up with me. I'm not even making that story up. Like that is how fast I walk. But I've done some reading on this. Do you know what the average speed of walking is? They, they have d- d- determined this and it's not based on just like us. It's like across cultures throughout time. On average, if you read about this, they will say it's three miles an hour. Three miles an hour is considered collectively the, the speed of walking. Now, for those of you, maybe math isn't your thing. That means you walk a mile in 20 minutes, right? That is not fast. I don't know if you've timed yourself. That's not like, I was gassed and I was sweating. Like, unless you're out of shape or you've got some medical thing you're working on, right? Which is no shame in that game. Like, that is just not a fast speed. I promise you at Disneyland, I am not walking three miles an hour. Like, never have I walked three miles an hour at Disneyland. I walk much faster than that. It is painful, for me to walk three miles. I have to I have to walk it backwards at three miles an hour. I mean, it's like, that's just not a fast speed. But I'm intrigued by this. Like, why is that the collective speed? Why is that the walking speed that most people refer to? There's a Japanese theologian who said something that, uh, <laughs> that caught my attention. Uh, his name is Kosuke Koyama. And he called three miles per hour the speed of God. And I read that phrase and I went, huh? Why is three miles per hour the speed of God? And his argument was that that is the speed at which Jesus of Nazareth lived his life. Three miles per hour. He walked almost everywhere he went. So when I read Luke 8, I think about Jesus walking three miles per hour to Jairus' house. Slow enough that he can get interrupted. Slow enough for a crowd to form and a whole other story to take place. I mean, if I was one of Jesus' disciples, I'd be like, hey, Jesus, check this out. 
if we double your walking speed, we can double the healings, demon possession. I mean, all this. Like, it's going to be incredible. I just need you to strap on some sandals here, get, pull that robe up a little bit. Like, let's go, and we're going to make this work. You just be like, no. No, three miles per hour. Just the speed of God. Just walking at a speed where he can be interrupted. So here's my question for all of us today. How can we make room for holy interruptions this week? So we can take a story like this and go, oh, isn't that so cool that Jesus loved like that? It is. That's how he wants to love you. But it's also how he wants to equip you to love the people around you. And it's gonna require some holy interruptions for us to slow down and say, oh, I have room in my schedule. I have room in my day. I, I, I can open my eyes to what's unfolding around me, not just what I'm set on. And again, depending on your personality, you're a type A person like I am, it's, this is a challenge. And yeah, I just reminded God, just allow me to be open to what you wanna do, to the people you wanna to supernaturally have crossed my path for some reason that I don't yet know. What would it look like if we said yes to those moments? I wanna close with, something that Kosuke Koyama said. He said, love has a speed. It's a spiritual speed. It is a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we are accustomed. It goes on in the depth of our life, whether we notice it or not, at three miles an hour. It is the speed we walk, and therefore the speed, the love, of God walks. Let's pray together. Jesus, may we experience the speed of God this week. For people like me, may, may we learn how to slow down, how to take a breath, how to open our eyes wider to see what's going on around us to realize in the morning when we wake up and we think about what we've got for that day, that might not be the most meaningful parts of our day. It might be that interruption that you're gonna orchestrate. It might be that accident that happens in front of us that we didn't see coming, that unexpected twist that we weren't prepared for. And yet may we love people one person at a time, and we'd be focused on people one at a time the way we find you doing. So may we experience you like this. May we be loved one person at a time as we fully are known by you. And may we realize that you have equipped and empowered us through your Holy Spirit to go and, and relay that to every single person we come in contact with. Would you empower us as your church to go out to all the people that we have influence with, all the lives that we have in, in contact with this week. May you help us love like you. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.